Hey everyone, I hope everyone's doing well. Hope you've had a great week and that you're looking forward to a nice weekend. This is a special episode. It's the hundredth episode. And, you know, as you well know, if you've listened to the podcast, it's been around for about a year. And one of the big pieces of of news you could say is that I've decided to change the name from therapy for guys to psyche. And there's several reasons why I've decided to do this. The the main being that as I followed my interest, as I followed my, you know, inner diamond, my my creative spirit, I realized that my interests are are far broader, more expansive than just thinking about masculinity and the the work of therapy with guys. And so I wanted to have a title that better reflected the types of guests that, that I've had and that I want to have on and just the types of ideas that really animate me. So I, I went with the Greek word psyche, which you may know means soul. And I don't necessarily mean psyche or soul in the classically religious sense of an immaterial substance that can't be destroyed and that will endure after death, although that is a fine understanding of it, if, if, if that resonates with you. I, I mean psyche in the ways that Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud and James Hillman and even the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus meant it, the totality of our being as a human person, and, and even a reality that exists outside of the, the human body inside outside the human skull and and that's complicated and, and hopefully we can get into that more in future episodes but I did want to share a few quotes that sort of capture my understanding of psyche uh, the first one is from Heraclitus and he says in his fragments setting out for the bonds of the soul or the psyche you will not find them out though you passed along every way so deep a logos does it have in other words, the soul or the psyche is deep as fuck. You can explore it for the rest of your life and you'll never fully figure it out or completely traverse it or reach some type of bottom. And, and so that captures the scope of what I want this podcast to be about. The other quote is from James Hillman, the archetypal psychologist, student of Jung, and he says, by soul, I mean, first of all, a perspective rather than a substance, a viewpoint toward things rather than a thing itself. This is from his book, Revisioning Psychology, where he also says, soul refers to the deepening of events into experience. Second, the significance of soul makes possible, whether in love or in religious concern, derives from a special relation with death. And third, by soul, I mean the imaginative possibility in our natures, the experiencing through reflective speculation, dream image fantasy, that mode which recognizes all realities as primarily symbolic or metaphorical. So I hope that you resonate with this new name, Psyche, and that it connects with who you are. If you listen to the podcast primarily for masculinity kind of stuff, there's still going to be some of that, but it won't be the central focus moving forward. That said, you're in for a treat. This was a great episode with the therapist and podcaster Chris Hoff. You can check out his podcast, The Radical Therapist, which I've been listening to for years. 
Uh, not only is he a therapist, but he's also a practicing Zen Buddhist, and we talk about that in this episode, how Zen Buddhism has shaped him as a person, how it helps him think about his own therapeutic practice. Uh, we get into some of his background, some of the values that shaped him as a kid, and how he went from being a very successful businessman to now a practicing therapist. That's a really interesting story. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, we get into some of his recent interest around liminal spaces and therapy and this concept of futuring and staying with the trouble, staying with the gray. Uh, we get into some of his philosophical influences, including Gloria Anzaldúa, Dogen, the great Zen philosopher, Bruno Latour, and so many others. And then we kind of end with the importance of not only being hopeful as humans, but the importance of doing the hard work of building messy community, because I think that's crucial if we're going to survive as a species and if we're going to move forward in this, in this life that we have. Guys, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with friends and family. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. So Chris, thank you so much for being a part of my podcast, uh, which was called until early this week, Therapy for Guys, but I actually changed it to Psyche. So you're, you're technically the first guest with this new name, and it's the uh, 100th episode, which I guess has no intrinsic meaning, but it's kind of a big deal for me because I started about a year ago. So it's, it's really cool that I get to have you on because I've listened to your podcast for a long time and your approach and, and what you have to say is is meaningful to me and the work that I do in therapy. So I'm, I'm really excited to get to know you and to connect with you. Wonderful. And congratulations on 100 in, in a year. You did 100 in a year. Yeah, I, 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 I did do 100 in a year. I worked maybe a little bit too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think I took, it took me like five years to get to 100 or okay. something. <laughs> yeah. Nice job. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, well, I guess, would, would you mind just kind of starting, I, I kind of like to do this with every guest, just letting sure. the listeners know a little bit more about who you are and kind of what you're up to professionally. And then from there, we can kind of launch into a conversation. Sure. Uh, well, currently, uh, I think professionally, I'm, uh, I do a lot of things, but my primary role is as a director, executive director, clinical director of California Family Institute, which is located in Southern California. And it's a community counseling practice that provides low cost, even no cost. Nobody's turned away no matter what they can afford mm. um, counseling services. So, and we also serve as a site to supervise and train new therapists um, that are interested in particular ways of working, like very collaborative, uh, post-structuralist, social constructionist, narrative therapy, et cetera, et cetera, kind of ways of working. So Sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah it sounds like y'all are doing some really important work. Yeah. We, we like to think we, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. And we have fun doing it. So. Okay. Yeah. And that's important to, to be able to have fun doing it. Mm -hmm. So Chris, one of the things that's always kind of intrigued me about your story is that you kind of started out like in the business world mm -hmm. and then transitioned into psychotherapy I, I was kind of wondering if you could maybe unpack a little bit of that, just kind of what led to you yeah, going into the business world and then kind of the transition into therapy, what what that was about. I'm sure there were a lot of different factors at play. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, thanks. Um, 
<laughs> it's kind of a long and winding story, but <laughs> yeah, I did start in business. Um, I had my own company. I co-founded a technology staffing company. I had a couple of partners. I was, I think I was 30 when we did that. Um, and we grew this successful business. By the time I exited, we had like 200 employees and, wow. uh, yeah, we were doing really well. But in the midst of that, I had, you know, what I say is like my third or fourth, fifth, you know, existential crisis or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it, when I was a younger person, you know, I, I entered into recovery myself, personal recovery when I was 26. And um, and part of being in that process is you kind of work with others, right? And so, sure. um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of, um, you know, being in conversation with people about meaningful and important things. And um, and you know, I ended up going back to school while I was growing this company and I got a, you know, undergrad psychology and I knew I wanted to, you know, um, go on and be a counselor. But I, I told people, well, I have these golden handcuffs, right? I had a successful business. So it was really hard for me. And I had a, uh, the chair of the psychology department in my undergrad, she said to me, you know, I was telling her my dilemma. She said to me, Chris, she just said, Chris, if you really want it, you'll find a way. And mm. And it took me a couple more years, but, um, you know, what, what really happened is, you know, at the time it was a couple more years later when I was, you know, kind of hamming and hawing about what I should do. And a friend of mine died by suicide oh. and the moment. Yeah. It kind of rocked my world. And then it had me really reflecting on my own life and sure. important to me. And, um, and so I went to my business partner shortly after that and said, you know, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to go back to school and become a therapist. And, you know, they were a little shocked, at, you know, initially, but we worked it all out and we're still friends to this day. And, um, and I ended up going off to grad school. You know? Wow. Yeah. And okay, so I, I have just kind of several questions in light of that. I mean, one of them, and I know I just said, I kind of changed the name from therapy for guys to, to psyche, but you know, I'm, I'm always curious when I connect with other male therapists, kind of what that was like. Were, were there any stigmas around mental health or, or, or therapy as, 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 as a male? And, and how did you navigate that as, as you, you know, ultimately became a therapist? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I was thinking about, I didn't, I didn't have much stigma about it. I was somebody that really enjoyed um, you know, I, I've been sent to therapy, you know, even as you, I think I was probably 15 or 16 the first okay. time I sent to therapy. You, you, were, my, you were in high school? Yeah. My mom was trying to like figure out what was wrong with me, <laughs> you know, and thought that that would help. And I don't know, you know, at that age, I wasn't the greatest therapy client, quite honestly, but I didn't <laughs> like the process. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, so I, um, and then later in life, you know, post recovery, then I went back to therapy and I had a, you know, just a really great therapist. Well, I had a couple therapists and I did have a moment of clarity I didn't share about with you. I, I had this guy, he was like, um, 70 something years old and he was an ex pastor and I, I'm wow. not particularly religious, well, I'm a Buddhist, but you know, I wasn't Christian, but he was a Christian pastor, really interesting guy. But, um, and I remember, and I enjoyed him and we had, it was a good experience. And I remember sitting with him one time and I just had this moment of clarity, like, I want to do what he's doing. Mm. 
And so, but that still took a few years. And sure. um, so I, I'd always, therapy, I'm still in therapy today. So, I mean, it's something that I've always participated in. And and so I, I, I understand the stigma, but I don't think I myself was influenced too much by it. Got you, right? got you. Well, okay, so so that kind of leads me to, to kind of explore a little bit, if you're okay with it, just kind of going back even into childhood, were what were some of the maybe I don't know if there was a religious or spiritual or just what were some of the values that kind of shaped you and and maybe even impact who you are today? I'm always curious about people's stories and and how those things kind of shape where where they're at currently. Yeah. Um, well, I was raised Catholic. Okay. <laughs> My parents, uh, I think, politically were Democrats and. Um, so they were on the left and there was this kind of, I mean, I just think, you know, I don't remember explicitly, you know, kind of doing that. I think, you know, my identity formation, I think happened and I just released a a podcast on the radical therapist about, I was talking to Joe McGarry who was in punk and hardcore bands and, um, we were having this kind and I was interested in that because I, you know, that I think that's where my identity formation happened. I think when I was about 13 years old, um, a friend of mine um, had me listen to the Sex Pistols album for the first time. And, wow. And so that created some sense of uh, politic in my life. Yeah. And then I've discovered The Clash and some of these other bands that were a little more social justice oriented and and I think um, some of those things began to influence me more so than anything I can remember as like okay. a young person. Although um, I think, you know, I went a uh, church, sure, you know, I picked up probably sure, sure. several principles from that. Now, maybe you, I haven't had a chance to listen to that specific episode. I, I'll go back and listen to that. But w- would you say that the whole, I don't know how to say it, the, the punk ethic or the just the, the punk vibe, has, has mm-hmm. that shaped? the way you think about working with people or therapy, like does it, does it still have kind of an influence on who you are as a person and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I think it's uh, this, uh, I think it's this idea of like question authority. Yes. You know, and, and I, in narrative therapy, there's this idea of like, you know, the taken for granted. So, and then, um, and how can we kind of question the taken for granted in our world? Right. And so, I think a lot of that appealed to me, you know, like the narrative practice appealed to me because of some of those ideas of like uh, attending power operations and relations and, and, you know, uh, never, you know, kind of challenging the taken for granted and and some of these things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And that, that, that kind of resonates deeply with me as well. I, Mm. I was actually curious, like in terms of, even the the programs that you did in terms of your degrees and, and becoming a therapist, did, did you go through various different schools or did you know in the beginning you kind of wanted to do the narrative therapy approach? I, I was curious kind of what that yeah, looked that's like. It's a, a great question. I always tell people, yeah, when I came into my graduate program, I would have self-identified as like an existentialist, right? Okay, yeah. I, that meaning making was everything. I was, you know, very influenced by like a Victor Yalom or sure. you know, some of the other existentialists, this idea and, you know, and, and what kind of surfacey knowledge I had about all that at the time. Right. But, um, but I knew going in that I wanted to work in a particular, but it was about meaning making. I wasn't really interested in interventions or, 
um, you know, the shiny, the next shiny intervention or whatever it might be. I was just really interested in, in conversations and meaning making and that kind of thing. But I, then I realized, then I went to school and I had some very influential, um, friends and mentors. And, and then I quickly discovered that not everybody is free to make meaning, mm. that there are constraints to meaning making for certain folks. Right. And, um, so then I became interested in other ideas about how to support people in the larger social cultural context and, you know, the isms like the racisms and the sexisms and those kinds of things that do create constraints in people's lives. And, um, and then I discovered narrative therapy about that same time. And so I thought narrative therapy captured what I really liked about, you know, meaning making, but also attending to these larger, you know, um, social, the, the larger social cultural contexts and power sure. operations and like, you know, um, like Deleuze's lines of force or Foucault's, you know, normalizing judgment and uh, the panopticon and all that kind of stuff. So, oh, yeah. It became very interesting to me. You know? Yeah, no, that's really great. You know, as, as kind of a, I don't even know if it's an aside, but I, I'd be curious if you could weigh in on this. I One of the things that's been frustrating for me lately with, I guess it is kind of in light of kind of all the mass shootings, it seems like more of the right is now saying, you know, it's a mental health issue. But I don't know exactly what they mean by that. I feel like they're missing the quote unquote mental health components that you're talking about, which are related to these larger social issues. I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think it, there's the politic at play, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's you know that's the difference between the right and the left, for example. I, I, I think um, not to you know, um, I mean, there's just I don't know. There's a lot of complexity in there too, but sure. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, distract and whatever you got to do, and I, I don't you know. I, I don't think it takes in, it's maybe a part of the picture. It doesn't give you the whole picture. And we live in a world where people want to um, create certainty, right? Mm. Or just, you know, take these complicated things and just point to like, well, it's a mental health issue. But once you start expanding it, then people's tolerance for that complexity kind of goes away and sure. they would rather just make it about whatever kind of thing. And so, yeah, mental. but then, you know, they blame it on mental health and then there's no funding for any of that. So. And, there, and, there's no, and there's no funding for it. Exactly. No, that's a great point. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's just kind of hollow anyway and hollow argument. Sure. If they really believe that, maybe they would, you know, do something about it. But yeah, nothing happened, no, know? that's, I think that's a great point. Now, I, I know um, if I can take a step back again, you know, one of the things that's been intriguing to me about your story is, yeah, your connection to something like Zen Buddhism. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk about how you got into that and then if there's any way in which you find that it shapes you as a therapist, um, you know, sure. I could, because I think there's there's ways in which there are people out there that really integrate something like Buddhism and psychology but then I think there's ways in which it just kind of shapes them as people and that comes out maybe not as explicitly in their therapy. And I didn't know if there was some of that that would be applicable to your story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how that happened for me, I think, you know, I, I was always a reader, right? So okay. I was always reading different sure. spiritual books, even even pre-recovery, right? And so, but when I entered into recovery and, you know, my life was changing drastically, um, 
I had a guy in my life and I think everybody should have this kind of guy in their life. Who's that guy that's like older and he's read every spiritual book in the way, you know what I mean? And yes. Vast knowledge and some type and, of sage or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was, he was out for me. And one night I remember he, he like said to me, Chris, you better get comfortable in the gray. And mm. I, I knew uh, what he was telling me was important. I didn't know what he meant at the time, quite honestly. And uh, but I knew what he was saying to me was important. And what I've come to understand is um, that he was telling me, Chris, you know, the world isn't black and white. You're going to have to learn to live in uncertainty and in the gray of the world, and it'll make your life a lot easier if you can kind of lean into that, right? And and that's something that's always stuck with me since, and something I aspire to continually. But. Uh, he was also the guy that introduced me to meditation. He okay. discovered that I couldn't go to sleep at that time without the radio on. I had like what they call the monkey mind, you know, sure. busy. And and he gave me this cassette tape. That's how old I am, right? So he gave me this cassette tape. And uh, one side was a meditation instruction. The other side was a guided meditation. And um, so I put it in my Walkman and, and that started my meditation practice. And then you know, I was doing that for a while and then I didn't want somebody talking to me. And so I went to silent meditation, but then I was like, am I doing this right? Right. You know, know, I didn't know. And I I was getting benefit. I I ended up being able to start sleeping without having to have the radio on that kind of thing. But I, uh, but I didn't know, I thought I could go deeper than what I was doing. And, um, and so I sought out, started seeking out spiritual teachers. I started going places and doing things and, um, and you know, I've discovered Zen Buddhism and it kind of really fit for me. It felt mm. like kind of like really comfortable to me. And maybe that was my, cause of my Catholicism bringing up, you know, there's some similarities about ritual oh, and, yeah. chanting and like, you know, and, um, the liturgy and stuff like that. But, um, uh, yeah. And then I just, and then I just liked what it had to teach about, mm. you know, um, well, this idea, you know, uh, well, a lot of different ideas about how, tell me how to sit in the soup of my own suffering, right? Mm. How to like not try to escape in all the ways that we escape to be comfortable in the uncertainty of life and in the suffering of life and in the struggle of life and, and like, and being, and it expanded my ability to, to experience all of life and not just chase feeling good. Right. Mm. And, and just to kind of be in all of life and, and I don't think we live in a world where people know how to do boredom anymore. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> right. And so Zen taught me how to do boredom, right? Like um, be in the, just, you know, because you're sitting so much in meditation and stuff like that. And, oh, yeah. And that was great. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, there's a teaching in Zen about that Zen is, uh, in Zen, there's nothing to attain, right? That's, there's, mm. It's good for nothing. And I really appreciate that idea of like where, you know, the real gold can be found in the imperfections of our lives and our families and relationships and communities. Right. And that, and that we don't have to change anything. Right. We just have to live our lives as they are. And, you know, and then it also helped me with the inevitable heartbreaking nature of life. Right. Mm. Um, that uh, my Zen teacher, James Ford, he wrote a book called, and I really love this title. He wrote a book called, if you're lucky, your heart will break. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, it's a great book if you, for those interested in maybe an entryway into Zen Buddhism, but, 
Um, and that's true. You know, it sounds like what? It's kind of contradictory, right? This idea, but it's, I've come to believe it to be true. You're, you're, if you're lucky, your heart will break. And, and I spent a lot of my life trying to avoid heartbreak and, mm. and it, creating a lot of heartbreak for myself. Right, right. Would, would, <laughs> would you say that heartbreak is ultimately inevitable and not something we can really prevent? No. Yeah. We try. We, we, we try. try. <laughs> we create suffering in our life, but mm. uh, no, no, it's just, you know, the, the, you know, that's one of the tenets of Buddhism, right? That everything is impermanent, right? Right. That includes our relationships, our loved ones, you know, everything's going to go away. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, okay, Chris, I'd love to ask you this. I'm, 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 I'm not a Buddhist, but I've, I've always been intrigued by the philosophy and have read quite a bit on it. And, you know, so so I'll try to bring two things together. You know, at some level, as a as a therapist, I know people come to me, and at some level, they're they're trying to discover their themselves, who they are, trying to forge some kind of identity. But then, in, mm-hmm. in I know in Zen Buddhism and other flavors of Buddhism, there's this idea of the no self, and mm-hmm. and and the wisdom of of sort of not holding on to a type of identity. I I, I wonder how you think about those two poles, you know, kind of constructing a self and an identity, but then also recognizing that maybe that's a type of fiction or, or something that's not really there. Yeah, I did. I did a video on the uh, on my YouTube channel, the Radical Therapist YouTube channel, called "The Myth of the Authentic Self." Right. The, oh, okay. <laughs> say more about that. That's great. I missed that. Okay. <laughs> There's just this idea of like you know, the, but I think it's a kind of a. Uh, it's a waste of time. I don't know what you want to say, <laughs> but you know, and, and I think uh, a lot of people have different ways of saying this, you know, the mm. social constructionists would say, you know, that we are all constructed in relationship. And then I think, you know, the psychoanalysts would say, you know, we're all created in ideology or something, some critique of that. Right. Sure. Or, um, and so I think, um, yeah, I just think we can't, we're, um, we're just so conditioned. Buddhism would say we're just so conditioned by our cultures, right? Mm. Which I don't disagree with, right? We can't escape the water we swim in wherever, our, whatever our cultures are. And so, uh, but that's the great mystery, right? Isn't that the great mystery to find out to, um, you know, to Dogen, uh, who's a, probably the most underrated philosopher, you know, Japanese Zen. Yeah. A person, you know, important person in Japanese Zen, but Dogen would say, you know, to study the self is to like lose the self. Mm. I'm it, but um, and I think if we do do that, if we examine how we're conditioned, it just makes our lives go. We're not so reactive to the world that uh, we can see how we're like the water we're swimming in. Um, we can see how we're being influenced in various ways and there's some mystery there. I don't know what you'll might find. I don't know if it's an authentic self, but, um, but maybe it's that piece that connects us all together, Mm. you know, uh, that I think we intuitively know. Yeah. Oh man. I, I really like that. No, thank you for kind of riffing on that. You know, since you mentioned Dogen and just kind of the, the kind of the philosophical tradition, that is one thing that has always intrigued me about you and your podcast that I think I've connected with is your interest in, you know, different types of philosophy and then how you, uh, I'm assuming, kind of bring, maybe bring some of that into the, the therapy office, into the clinic. I, I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of the philosophical influences in your life, uh, you know, what, what they mean to you personally, 
And then if there's any ways you do apply them in therapy, I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in ideas and like what people are thinkers and like, and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And, um, and so I'm always like reading and listening and watching and like paying attention to, you know, even contemporary thinkers. I'm, I'm kind of interested not so much in past thinkers, although I do am influenced by some of that, but I'm just in p- current people, you know, and how people are thinking about things and what some ideas are going on out there. And that's what I wanted the podcast to be too. Like, how can I curate various ideas and bring those together and let people sort them out the way they want to sort them out. But yeah, you know. well, you've done a great job with that. So thank you for hosting that, that, that space. Thanks. Cause I've, I've, Thanks. I've been able to do the very thing you wanted listeners to do. So, Wonderful. so Wonderful. thank you. So you were, if you want to start, you, I think you were saying you, you, you were more into kind of contemporary ideas or thinkers. And I, I'm mm-hmm. just curious, maybe if you could pick a few that you really enjoy and then, Maybe talk about, you know, in terms of the ideas, what what's energizing about those, and then maybe how you kind of think about connecting that to therapy. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I think I'm interested, you know, people have been very influential to me, or people like Bruno Latour, um, who just recently passed away, actually, mm-hmm. but I think he was, he will come to be a very important voice, I think, and um, and, um, I think, you, you know, Gloria Anzaldua, who I've, you know, s- spoken about a couple of times, primarily with Anna Louise Keating and yes. her post-optionality. And that's how, how I got introduced to Anzaldua's work. And, um, uh, somebody, I, I, Peter Rollins, I think has been on your podcast. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, I, I'm not a psychoanalytic, um, philosopher person but i do like listening to other ideas of other folks sure um, i'm thinking of you know recently i read tj demos and theo ellison i'm interested in how we work with the future i think mm. there's a lot of like turning to the past in, in therapy sure i'm interested in um you know michael white who's you know co-founder of narrative therapy right written a lot about it, talked about um, the, you know, that if people are entering into some form of lim- liminal space or uncertainty that we should help give them predictions of some kind of the experiences they might have. Mm. And so that's kind of been having me interested in how we work with the future and the present at the same time. With gotcha. people. And there's a well-known psychoanalyst, Adam Phillips, who talks about, he had written something about the fact that people often come to therapy talking about experiences they haven't had yet. Mm. And so it's kind of that worst case scenario. So I've become interested in people that are writing and talking about futuring or futurism. Okay. Or, Chris, uh, can, can, or, can you go, can you go there? Cause that sounds fascinating. It's something that I don't often think about, but I, yeah. I do, I have to agree if, if, if we're kind of talking about the same thing that so many of my clients are either stuck in the past or they just keep on going back to it and repeating old patterns. And, yeah. and there really is a sense where therapy is so much about this futuring but I haven't really given much thought to it. I'd be curious if you could help me with that. What are some of the ideas? Yeah, and that is like the bulk of like what I'm thinking about right now. Okay, so man. Often, you know, what I would say, what often gets characterized as self-sabotage or repeating the same behaviors sure. or um, relapse or anything like that, or just being stuck is often I, I characterize it or I conceptualize it as people are uh, standing at the threshold of liminal space. Right. Mm. 
Uh, Michael White wrote, wrote about it as like being between um, the known and familiar and the possible to know. And that in between that space is what we could call liminal space, right? And, um, and that liminal space is where, you know, that's where, have you seen that meme where it's a, there's a circle and it says comfort zone and then there's a circle and it says where the magic happens. Yes. And the two are not touching. Right. And there's always the space in between that space is where all change happens, mm. where, where innovation happens, where all the stuff happens. But that space also, liminal space also require, it's a very destabilizing, can be very terrifying. Yes. And so when people are repeating the same thing, they're just going back. They might step into liminal space, but they often turn back mm. um, to the known and familiar and whatever that might be. And so our jobs as therapists, I've become to describe myself not so much as a therapist, but a liminal space tour guide. Right? Oh, I like that. <laughs> so how do we help people? Uh, you know, Vygotsky would say, how do we scaffold people? Yes, I love Lev Vygotsky, by the way. Okay. He's great. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, so his zone of proximal development would sure. be kind of a map to move through liminal space, right? That we walk with and then walk alongside, you know, kind of walk alongside and then move away and let people go. But this is where the future talk has to come in in therapy because we have to support people in, um, in kind of some expectation or predictions of experiences they might have. So when they do happen, they're not so prone to turning back to what is known and familiar. Got right? it. Got it. Chris, and, could you speak about I'm, those? Like, 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 yeah some experiences that people will likely have in that liminal space. Yeah. For, oh yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, trying to do a career change was a common one. Right. And, sure. um, I want to, or, you know, it's like somebody, oftentimes I'm sure you've had this happen. Somebody comes to you and I'm like, I'm an accountant, but I want to be an artist. Right? Oh yeah. All <laughs> so the time. How do I, yeah, right. So how do I, um, take that leap. And so that is the work, right? Rather mm. than you know, how do we support them and what they might expect in that. And that's why I become interested in like future scenarios, right? How do we create multiple futures and talk about what might be required in all of those possible futures? Because oftentimes people come to therapy with worst case scenarios, right? right? Like, and so those things are like creating no movement. And so how do we populate a, a, other possible futures, when we're talking with clients, right. And then sure. working back from there about like what expect, what experiences might you have in these efforts of, mm. of real change. Right. Sure. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, it's super helpful. Yeah. yeah. You know, but you know, one of the things that's coming up is at the same time, I think we're, I think it's a different type of future, but I, I'm just curious how, how you would think about this and how your therapeutic approach kind of connects with it. I think I'm seeing a lot of younger people coming into therapy and they're sort of afraid of the future with like climate change and just the the craziness that's going on, you know, in our world, the, 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 the divisive politics, we can go on and on and on. Yeah. Do, do you ever get into that type of future? Do, do, do you see that being something that you have to navigate as a therapist, helping people make sense of that? Yeah. Um, you have me thinking, um, Next year, I'm gonna I'm co-editing what what is titled an Encyclopedia of Radical Helping, and nice. it's going to be put out by Thick Press in 2024. And I'm co-editing it with um, Aaron Siegel and uh, Julie Chow and uh, Cho. And, um, and I'm thinking about Julie and Aaron talk about one of their contributions to the encyclopedia is what's called ongoingness, right? Mm. 
um, this idea of ongoingness. How do we how do we still move and not get you know paralyzed by you know just the overwhelmingness of the challenges ahead, right? And I think that's I think that's why this futuring work is like so important. How do we you know because what we really need are these skills. How are we going to to create new worlds together in this, right? If we can't even get started. And so the way that we do that, I think is like to have these kinds of conversations of what, what is going to be required? What will support you on these journeys through liminal space? What, um, who can do, who can do them with you? Who would you want to have, you know, part of this, you know, you know, circulating their stories who will, who will help you in these efforts and just kind of, you know, supporting people in the ongoingness that's going to be required in this hard work of world making. Right. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. It's like, I, 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 I got to think more about that ongoingness cause that's a category that, that really resonates with me. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, I think, uh, it was Donna Haraway in her book. Uh, I forget what it's, what it's titled, but she has this phrase, um, you know, sticking with the trouble or, or, or li- li- lingering with the difficulty. And, yeah. and that, 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 that Michael White re- would call it loitering with intent. <laughs> oh, that's good. Loitering, loitering with intent. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So do, do you see yourself as, as someone who's, who's hopeful as, as you think about futuring, as you think about the future, um, would would you be a bit of an optimist or, or how would you kind of characterize yourself? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think people that know me kind of call me a curmudgeon, but, <laughs> you know, but I think that's just, you know, the performance of, because sure. I think curmudgeons are like off. I, I think are very hopeful people, right? that's why they're curmudgingly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, I, I don't think I would do this work if I wasn't hopeful. Right. Mm. I, you know, um, um, I think of I think of it as like a Kato Weingarten writes about reasonable hope. Right? Mm. Uh, sometimes I think hope can betray. I know people in my clinic always think I'm being nihilistic when I say that, but uh, but it can in certain ways. And so I'm interested in kind of a reasonable hope. And uh, but I don't think you can. And you know. Uh, I don't think you can do this. You, you tell me. I don't think we could be in this work if we weren't like. Absolutely. Some ways, right? I, you know, sometimes I'll be sitting with, you know, some of the worst suffering imaginable. And when mm. other people can't see a way forward or they've lost hope, I, I will try to be as honest as possible and say, I don't know what the solution is going to be or what the next five years are going to look like. But I wouldn't be sitting here across from you if I didn't think some type of hope was possible, some type of growth or transformation very, I mean, very humble and and tentative about what that's going to look like and how to get there, but I, I I do believe, as I sometimes say, in in a tomorrow, in a mm-hmm. in a tomorrow that can be better, even mm-hmm. if that's minuscule. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I'm like interested in the future. I mean, and helping support people into moving into the future and in, in like creative ways and because we need that right mm. we need that now more than ever sure sure you know chris uh how do, how do you feel about in terms of this ongoingness and and this futuring do, do you see a, a role for like groups communities organized relationships and, and, oh, I'm, yeah. and, I, and I'm asking that because on the one hand you know, I, I came from kind of organized religion. I, I'm no longer affiliated with that. And there's some p- 
pieces of that that were very helpful in organizing and, and, and promoting ideas. But there's always this shadow side. There's authoritarianism. There's all kinds of bad shit that comes with that. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to get back into kind of groups and communities, but, but I do see the value in them. So I'm, I'm curious how someone like you thinks about that. I know that's a complicated question, but I'm just curious to see where you go with that. Yeah, but I, I think it's an important question. And um, I think we're losing our ability to be relational. And, mm. I, you know, and I think, you know, from from like, you know, church uh, attendance is down. I'm sure you're aware of that yes. and, you know, across the board. And I, we don't have community civic groups so much anymore. You know, the Kiwanis Club and the Lions Club and stuff, they're you know, they're dying away too. And so we don't, we're losing our, that social uh, capital that Robert Putnam talks about. Yeah. And the spaces for us to come together. Um, we're losing our ability to, um, coalesce and, uh, create coalitions. I think that's why I'm interested in like Judith Butler talking about backgrounding identity claims, you know, Mm. like identity politics and, and, in an effort to foreground our ability to, to build coalitions because i mean that's the only way we're going to get political power or change is going to happen and the more that we right you know separate and you know and you know we, we do have an epidemic of loneliness you yes. know, at least you know, in the u.s for sure um there are deaths of despair on the rise you know mm. what they're calling deaths of despair and so uh, yeah, c- community is messy, but just because it's messy doesn't mean we have we can't shy away from it. That's why I'm interested in like how do we help people do the messy, right? Yeah, and, that's good. Do with uncertainty and like even myself, it's it's a it's you know I'm a gold medal isolator. I should say that for everybody listening. So and I'm a platinum one. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so. So I am trying to practice what I preach. Same too. here. Easier for me just to go be by myself. It really is. So, um, but I'm also, you know, because of my participation in like twelve step groups, I know what it's mm. like to be a community of people who, what they say in recovery is who would normally not mix, right? Gotcha. So, you know, that's been a great teacher for me too. So, but how? Do, but we are losing that ability, and I think you know, at a, at a time that we need it more than ever. Sure, sure. And, you know, w- w- one of the things that kind of resonates with me about, about you know, you and your podcast and the narrative therapy and collaborative approaches, and I think it's Kenneth Gergen, is just just the value of coming together and constructing conversations and realities mm-hmm. that might not otherwise be. Yeah. And, and that's difficult work, but but I think it's important. Well, I think if we're going to have even survive as humanity, we got we have to be able to do it, right? We're mm-hmm. at we're at a threshold, right? As a as humanity, we're, you know, we're I think we're at another threshold, and it's like we could either turn back, and you see that you see that in these movements of like make America great again, right? It's, it's wanting to go back to the known and familiar. That's well said. And it's uh, what we need is no, we need to go to the possible to know, but we have to traverse liminal space in doing that. And that's scary and it's uncertain and there's no predicted outcome. And, and how do we tolerate that? Right? Sure. Sure. Like uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he's a, he was a Buddhist teacher. He said, the bad news is, is that you're falling and there's no parachute. Mm. And the good news is there's no ground. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I like that. 
So yeah, it feels like falling. I had a friend of mine say, yeah, it's just takes faith and faith has no handles. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Now, do, do you have, because I know this is one of the contemporary realities that's difficult to navigate. It's kind of a hot button issue, but especially with like maybe younger people, do you have any thoughts on like social media or just the internet, the digital in general, and how that maybe is working against social bonds and community building? Yeah, do, do you well, see it that way or do you have a different yeah, perspective? I do. I mean, I think it does, it can provide spaces of connection. Sure. Would normally just like this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's all available, but I think um, the real work is going to be done offline. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Now, just for the the sake of the listeners, and I'm going to kind of write it down in my mind in terms of this futuring and 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 what we were talking about a moment ago. Is there a book that you would recommend someone start with? If they're kind of interested um, in just digging deeper into that, yeah, there's a, I think I have it here somewhere really quick. <laughs> there's an article um, by well, I'm I'm writing a book, so okay, so we'll just have to wait until that comes out. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to wait till that comes out, but it's gonna come out. Um, but uh, there's a paper by Theo Ellison that I think. Oh, it's a. Uh, uh, disciplined imagination, I think, is the okay. paper that he wrote, and I think, um, and that's the uh, speculate arts, the art of speculation, or something like that. Okay. But Theo Ellison, he's a, I think, an English academic. Uh, was will give you a history of, um, you know, tools of prediction from like the Cold War avant garde to to present moment, and um, sure. Uh, and I think it's interesting to get people to start thinking about that. So sure, sure. Any of the work of uh, I think I'm just going to say her name, Renata Tizik, and she's in she's in England as well. And she writes about future scenarios. Okay. Um, and so she's worth reading too. Okay, yeah, yeah that's really interesting. Now, are, are you able for a moment to talk a little bit about some of the organizing that you do? You know, throughout the years, I've seen that you have these gatherings that are connected to your podcast. And and just just curious, kind of what that's about, and if someone w- yeah. were interested, well, it's, huh? it's me doing what you're trying to say. Like, how do I create community? Okay, right? so it's me trying to do those kinds of same things. How do I com- create community? At California Family Institute too. We we do things like narrative and pizza, where we'll you know do some conversations around the, pre- the practice, and but you know get some pizzas and bring people together. Um, from different contexts and it's great too. Cause we get, you know, somebody said this to me the other day that we had people showing up that are actually not therapists. They're just interested in, in these kinds of conversations. And that, and that was a great compliment that we were getting people that are, were not just therapists. Yeah, right? That's great. You know, from different, you know, all kinds of different contexts. So it was kind of fun, but yeah. So that all of that stuff is just, me because i even though i'm a gold medal isolator i do really like people <laughs> conversation with people sure and i like trying to create community and i think it's important so it's yeah trying to do that. absolutely yeah. okay so chris i i, I know that i i've kind of come to the end of the questions that i had for you i'm, I'm just so appreciative of this chance to connect and kind of build this bond with you i i just wonder if there's anything else that you know you'd want any of the listeners to know about you or anything that's coming up um, I'll try to include all your information in the show notes and all of that. But um, as we come to a close, is is there sort of some final words or just anything else you'd want to talk about? No, I, I really appreciate your questions, uh, Kike, and uh, inviting me on. And um, 
you know, if there's one thing I would leave with people that I, you know, I have hope. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Um, how do we, you know, how do we create a future that we all want to be a part of? Right. Mm. And it's, and, but also caution people that it's going to be hard work. So, yeah, you know. it doesn't sound like you're promoting any kind of utopic ideal or some easy strategy. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm anti-utopia. <laughs> I, I, I am too. Well, and, and, and you know what else too? I, I think what I'm really anti, and this is working with so many like bright eyed teenagers sometimes is that the future is not just going to be a place of happiness. Mm-hmm. The, the, there may be those moments, but you know, some of it will be very ordinary and, and unhappy. <laughs> well, and remember, if you're lucky, your heart will break. If you're mm-hmm. lucky, your heart will break. I think that's a great place to end. Yeah. So Chris, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me and there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.